The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at HalliburtonLabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast. I'm your host, Jose Solis, and today I am joined by Kemp Gregory. Kemp is the co-founder and CEO of RenewWell Energy. Kemp, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. If you wouldn't mind, Kemp, would you give the listeners a little bit of your background so they know a little bit about who you are? Yeah, for sure. I was actually born and raised in Houston, went to Stratford High School just down the road, and then went to UT Austin for mechanical engineering. Thought I wanted to be in the automotive industry because I grew up working in the bays of my dad's mechanics shop. And so they they didn't have automotive engineering, so they had mechanical engineering. That was the closest thing to it. I thought I wanted to be, you know, CEO of Ford Motor Company. And so I took mechanical engineering and then got an internship with Ford. And it was a really cool experience. But at the end of the day, I was like, I don't want to live in Detroit. <laughs> you know, I don't want to live in Michigan. <laughs> so then I said, you know, okay, green energy, that's what I'll do. So I got an internship with Shell's Wind Energy Group. And that was a really cool experience. Sort of the same thing happened though, except this time it wasn't the problem of location. It was like, I don't think Shell's taking this very seriously in 2011. <laughs> And so I decided to not do that, but I did stick with Shell actually. And I found out this was like the hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling wave was just sort of crashing onto the market. And so I jumped on board that and then I never looked back for five years. (laughs) I got to work for Shell in West Texas and Canada and Argentina. And I was actually living in Argentina, working there when I decided I didn't want to work for a big oil and gas company anymore. The time had come. And then I sort of, you know, embarked on my own transition to clean space. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. So let's go back for a second. So you're a bit of a gearhead, it sounds like. (laughs) I used to read Motor Trend every month, cover to cover. Since then, my interests have diverged a little bit, but I'd still dream one day of like buying a Cobra kit car and building it in a garage or restoring something. But those are all dreams for now. Like the Factory 5 racing one? Yeah, like a Shelby Cobra lookalike. Yeah, because I can't afford the real one for sure. That's (laughs) like a million dollars, man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it would be cool one day to like build one of those, you know, car in a box kind of situations. Those things are so cool. I've looked into them myself as well because, yeah, I'm not going to spend a million dollars on a car. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, just on principle alone and, you know, just looking at them, I mean, they've come a long way, like the engineering, the technology. Factory 5 Racing has a kit that's just phenomenal and you can get the crate engine. They have all these different packages you can get, right? And I've looked into them and I mean, they're really, really cool. But I love cars as well. And that's really interesting to hear that you started off, you know, turning wrenches and knew that you wanted to be an engineer at heart. And I've talked to a few engineers, especially throughout, you know, my career, 
just recently I was speaking to an engineer who said, would you say that, and I'm not an engineer, but he said, would you say there's a bigger market for somebody going to school for petroleum engineering or mechanical engineering? And I said mechanical because I think that you have so many more options, I think, later on that you can diverge into different types of engineering from mechanical engineering. I mean, a lot of the engineers that I've worked with in my career have been mechanical engineers, and they've just been so diverse in their abilities to go and do other types of engineering, other disciplines of engineering. But I think that's really interesting. That's where you started, and here you are now, right? That's a really interesting story. So you went to work for Shell, but what was it initially that, and obviously you're from Houston, so maybe this sort of answers itself, but what was it that drew you into the energy industry? Because obviously your father was in automotive. Was it somebody else in your family or was it just like, I think energy is where I want to go? Yeah. A lot of times you hear about these oil and gas families almost. Like my dad was a petroleum engineer and my you know mom's petroleum engineer or whatever. That was not the case for me. You know what really hooked me is when I started learning about wind turbines, it just opened up the whole, the energy space for me. And I just got so enamored with the idea of the connection point between energy and like civilization as we know it today. There is no one without the other, you know, like you have to have all of this energy pumping into all of our cars and our houses and our computers for all of this to work. It's like the lifeblood of civilization. And I just think that's super cool. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely. I mean, it's, you know, something that you do hear quite often, like a dynasty, if you will, in energy, but you know, newcomers come into the space and have, you know, like these ideas of what it represents and living in the energy capital of the world of Houston, I mean, we're surrounded by it, right? So it's, it's really interesting. So now obviously you're on this entrepreneurial journey and it sounds like you have maybe a little bit of entrepreneurship in your blood through your father having his own (laughs) business. Yeah. Yeah. So have you always had the same spirit or was there something that, you know, happened that drove you to strike out on your own? Yeah, it's actually a bit of a narrative there in that one of the reasons that I went to go work for Shell so happily is that I did not want to own my own business (laughs) because I saw the way, (laughs) you know, I saw the cons associated with that lifestyle through my dad. And I'm not saying it's all bad. It's just, you know, you got to bend over backwards for your customers and, you know, it's all on you to make it all, you know, put bread on the table. And I was like, man, here's this thing, huge company. I can go learn a lot. They'll fly me around the world. I want to go do that. But at the end of the day, what happened was I just realized that certain people, they just have different appreciations for risk. And the longer I stayed in Shell, the more I realized my tolerance for risk is way higher than everybody else here. (laughs) And that's not necessarily an insult against them. I was never going to be the world's greatest shells completions engineer. You know, I'm just not wired that way. I was ready to take a much larger risk than most of the folks there, or at least at that time. And that just sort of concluded that I was like, hey, I want to go do something a little bit crazier, a little bit more (laughs) adventurous. But I don't regret any of my time with Shell. It was amazing. I met really talented, smart people. It was an awesome way to get started. And there was really no way for you to really know that unless you had walked down that journey, right? That's exactly right. Unless you had really gone down that path. Yeah. Experience is the ultimate teacher. Exactly. And I think it's maybe overlooked quite often where people say, you know, I don't want to go work for somebody else. I think it's first you have to learn to follow before you can lead. That's That's first and foremost, right? I think it's really great when people go and work for companies that are highly organized like Shell. It's like the Royal Navy of oil and gas companies, right? (laughs) And you go work for a company like Shell, you learn 
so much. They invest a lot into their people. They're a well-organized organization. It doesn't make sense. Well-organized organization. <laughs> like you said, they know what they know. And I think because you know they have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, they don't have the luxury of taking certain risks all the time. Right. right. And I'm sure that there are times where they have taken risks and it works out because they do a lot of they put a lot of energy into the forethought before we take this risk, what are all the things that can happen to go wrong? And sometimes it's really hard to move fast when you have to go through those processes. Right. I think it's a very valuable experience, right? And it sounds like it really paid off well for you. And so moving into more of the entrepreneur side now, you know, obviously when you're looking at starting a company, a lot of people say, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. But if you want to go far, go with others. So you've chosen to go with co-founders, which is Definitely. from what I've gathered, you know, that is one thing that investors look at when evaluating companies. How many co-founders do you have? Because a lot of times they don't want to have a single point of failure in a company. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes they look for companies that have multiple co-founders. What are some of the things that you would recommend to somebody who's looking at starting a company with some co-founders? Because I think we have to evaluate each person and figure out like, is this a good fit? And maybe some things or techniques that you've thought about as you evaluated your co-founders, as well as investors or, or even the business idea itself. Yeah. So I had an, a major advantage in that this idea came to me after I had left Shell, but while I was still a graduate student at Stanford. And I mean, just the caliber of people around me which was incredibly lucky for me to be around, <laughs> made it so that I don't want to say it was shooting fish in a barrel because my co-founder, it really is like we were fast friends. We were in the same program. And then like I sort of pitched him on the idea and he was like, yes, I want to do that. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> and honestly, there was no way to know just how well we would mesh at that point other than like, I like spending time with this guy. He's cool, but his strengths match my weaknesses and it's just been a really fruitful relationship. I like to brag that I got the best co-founder that anyone can have. And sometimes those strengths and weaknesses, you know, create some friction between us, but we work through it and we never get too hot-headed or anything like that. From what you're saying, it sounds like the recipe for success was there because a lot of times what I've heard other co-founders say is that I've wanted to find somebody that would be able to fill the gaps that I have in my skill set. And mm -hmm. so strengths and weaknesses, understanding, being brutally honest with yourself and saying, what am I good at? What am I not good at? What is this person good at? Are they good at the things I'm not good at? Not even just what you're good at. What do I like to do? What do I do not like to do? Right. <laughs> and if they like doing those things, then that's yeah. usually a good sign that maybe you would make good working partners. What about when you're considering investors as well? I mean, what are some of the thought process that you and your co-founder go through and say, well, you know, this is what we want to find in an investor or a partner. Because when investors come in, you know, obviously they're putting dollars behind the company and they obviously want to have a voice. So you have to take a lot of those things into account. What are some of the things that you do and your co-founders do when you're evaluating potential investors? Yeah, we tried to be as upfront with all of our current investors as we possibly could, which was that, hey, this is a hard tech software hybrid. You know, we're not building an app. <laughs> you're not going to get paid out in three years from now. So whoever we bring on board, we want them to be able to contribute. We don't just want your money, we want your wisdom. And we want you to be okay with the long haul. And we sort of paired that with like, look, we're gonna go over and above 
on keeping you informed. I promised all of our angels that I would send weekly emails. We have monthly phone calls and I just, I do as much as I possibly can to keep them in the loop. And so far it's been amazing. They don't pressure me. They help me when I need help. They applause when I do well. They tell me, Hey, you need to do better when I do wrong. But (laughs) it's really like the angels have been just that angels not making anything harder than it needs to be, just pitching in when they can pitch in. And it mostly came from friends and family. And then sort of that next tier outside of friends and family. Like if I trust these people and then I trust who they trust. And that's sort of made up who the angels are. And we've been super fortunate. Yeah, I think that sounds like it's worked out really well. And I like the idea that, you know, just like you're saying, over communicating, you know, just giving that information, letting them know where things are at. And then obviously them not making anything harder than it needs to be and then trying to help you open doors in their own way. Because obviously what's good for the company is good for them and seeing it that way. As a first time founder, I didn't necessarily have like the guts to be like, I need you to be okay with this level of communication and these expectations, but maybe I communicated it like subtly, but it came across like nobody presses on me that hard, which is important. Like that's sort of the defining characteristic of a good angel is they don't make your life miserable. (laughs) They understand that you need to be spending 99% of your time, you know, building whatever it is, trying to get it off the ground. Right. You mentioned, you know, that what you have is a combination of both physical and tech, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's obviously a design process that goes into both. And sometimes they're similar, like, you know, people can refer to agile and things of that nature like that design process, especially when you're talking about technology, right? Mm-hmm. What was that design process for RenewWell? What was that like for your team? What did you use and how's that worked? We didn't have like a structured design process necessarily. What we did was we said, okay, there's all these inactive oil and gas wells out there and we have several ideas of how to repurpose them. So Then we got everybody in a room together and without telling anybody what the few ideas were, like between me and the co-founder, we had all these other students that were going to help us. We said, okay, here's a dry erase marker. Here's a whiteboard. Go draw up every single idea you can come up with. So we tried to like tap into any and everyone's creativity. And then we just sort of (laughs) whittled ideas down in that session after everybody had fleshed out all their thoughts. And then, you know, basically there was only a handful of designs left. And then we just kept pressing on those. Our mentality in the beginning was, how can we kill this? How can we make sure that this, <laughs> you know, like, let's find this thing's Achilles heel and then let's kill it. Because if it doesn't have an Achilles heel, I mean, if it does have an Achilles heel, we would need to be the first to know because we're like contemplating making a big life decision on it. Like your mentality Absolutely. needs to be, how can I kill this idea? Right. Yeah. And if it survives, then you have a potential winner. So let's go ahead and jump into that a little bit because we haven't covered exactly what it is that yeah. RenewWell does and what you guys do. So let's give the audience some clarity there. So talk about the technology, talk about what you guys are aiming to do. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go to sort of classic problem and solution. The problem is that there are millions and millions of inactive oil and gas wells all through the nation. And they are just sitting there either doing nothing or doing nothing good. Some of them are leaking methane which is a big no-no in the you know climate push these days. So we said to ourselves, like, there has to be something that can be done with these. Let's make them into energy storage. That kills two birds with one stone, honestly. It cleans up wells at the same time that it creates energy storage, which will help wind and solar gain market share. And so the design that we settled on, the most robust, 
Elegant is a euphemism for simple. It's a gravity-based energy storage device that suspends a weight at the top of the well and then connects that weight with a wire rope to a regenerative winch on surface. And now the well has been sealed, so there's no interface with the reservoir whatsoever. We're really just looking for deep holes in the ground. And then when that weight is at the top of the well, it's sort of like a dam full of water. That dam's going to let that water run through a big turbine, and that's how they create electricity. And so they're moving mass above and below the dam. We are doing more or less the same thing, except our mass is a big steel tube. And the way, instead of a turbine, we're using a regenerative winch. So now you got this weight at the top of the well. The well's sealed off. That weight wants to descend down the well. It wants to go screaming down. But we've got control of it with a wire rope. And as it descends, it's going to pull that wire rope in and spin the whole winch system backwards, if you want to think about it that way. And when you spin a regenerative winch system backwards, you're pushing power to the grid. You're making electricity. And then when the weight gets to the bottom of the well and or it's you know then economic to pull power from the grid, you can think of the winch now operating in its normal function. It's reeling that weight up to the surface. So really, we're just, you know, weight moving down, energy to the grid, weight moving up, energy from the grid. And that's how we do our energy storage. Is it pulling energy from like a renewable source or where is it pulling energy from to recharge it? Yeah, we're sort of agnostic on where we're getting the power. At the beginning, we'll just be pulling from the grid, whatever the grid mix is. If you're in West Virginia, not so great. If you're in California, wonderful. Fortunately, there's lots of wells in California and Texas, sort of solar and wind respectively. So that's how we plan to do it at the beginning. But we would very much like to start installing solar panels right next to these wells on big gravel pad with a nice clearing and an electrical connection, and then using that solar power to lift and lower the weights. Yeah, because I've seen other gravity systems, just mostly online, just seeing them and they've talked about how you know that's how they store energy is they pull from either wind turbines or whether it be solar panels and then that's how they're getting the energy to pull the weights up and then whenever they need to get energy back then the weights use gravity to drop down and storm a similar system that you have or not similar but the same type of renewable yeah, energy right yeah and so i'm curious because i know that you had mentioned in the Rice Alliance demo day that a lot of these companies, especially the oil and gas or the oil and gas companies, they already have to remediate these wells and they're sitting there doing nothing anyway. So this is a potential way for them to generate another revenue stream for themselves. That's right. Yeah. You know, there was really no means by which an oil and gas company could access the burgeoning market of energy storage services other than converting their wells into gravity-based energy storage devices. So it's kind of like a trash to treasure situation. They've got all these wells sitting on their books in the form of asset retirement obligation or, you know, just the liability that they have carrying around to plug and abandon them. And we say, look, you were forced to do this thing that got you no return on your money whatsoever. Now there's a new option. There's a new option where we can make you money. And some of them, I know that they are looking at potentially turning them into geothermal wells. And I don't know if there's ever, I don't know what the process looks like, but maybe you can talk about it a little bit. When a company, an oil and gas company is evaluating what they should do with the well, is there usually an either or, or it depends? I think probably the answer is going to be, it depends because that's usually (laughs) the way things go. But have you run across any situations where it might be better to run a geothermal system or run a gravity system? 
So from what I understand, if you want to turn a normal oil and gas well into a geothermal system, you're going to have to re-drill the well. You're going to have to drill it deeper to get to higher temperatures. In my experience, you know, average bottom hole temperature in the Permian is like 150 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not quite enough to really get geothermal going unless you use a different working fluid other than water, which maybe that's what some of these companies plan to do. But you would need to find wells, existing wells, that were on top of natural geothermal resource that you could drill deeper to access. That's how I imagine they would do it. But, you know, I'm no geothermal expert. You mentioned that there was millions of these abandoned wells. And I read an article recently that said that a lot of the orphaned wells that were just left there has been like tremendously undercounted and that there's way more than what we know of. And now I guess like the government's kind of stuck with them. How does it work when they're just a orphan? Like how would Renewell be able to maybe help in that situation? Is that something that you might work with the Department of Energy with or something along those lines, another government entity to try and help maybe get those wells like producing some sort of energy instead of just sitting there? Yeah. So the problem is sort of bifurcated into two different names. And that is inactive, which the way I use it, a lot of people mean abandoned wells. Like the key difference there is they still have an owner. Somebody owns that well. It's sitting there doing nothing. And then orphan wells, nobody owns that well except for the state. But whoever did own it went bankrupt or just <laughs> absconded the nation or something like that. <laughs> right. So the orphan well problem is particularly ornery. And the government just approved like $4.7 billion to attack the orphan well problem, which is wonderful. I love hearing that. That's fantastic news. Like go clean up those orphan wells. <laughs> the unfortunate truth is that, you know, there's not that many orphan wells in the United States. Like in Texas, the ratio is something like six to 7,000 orphan wells to something like 80 to 90,000 inactive wells. So the way we view the problem is like, let's go upstream of the orphan. Like let's attack it before it loses its parents. <laughs> you know, like let's repurpose it before it ever get, becomes like a ward of the state. Because if you zoom out just one layer, you'll see that there's this huge funnel of wells that are teetering on the edge of becoming orphan. It's that huge funnel that we want to go after. I see. I see. So Moving a little bit away from that, I want to come back to you a little bit. And I want to ask you, as somebody who's obviously you've gone down the road of working for you know a company, you put in the time, you obviously you've got the classroom time, Stanford, UT, right? Like you've done all those things. But I'm curious to know what skill set or skill sets have you developed outside the classroom that have helped you most as an entrepreneur? I got one that's going to be real practical and then one that's going to sound overly philosophical. The real practical <laughs> one is Google Calendar. Man, I live on Google Calendar. There's not a single thing I do that I don't put into my own Google Calendar. I'm not even talking about meetings. Like I talk about like, I'm going to eat dinner at this time. I'm going to eat lunch at this time. I mean, it's going to take exactly this long. And then I'm going to go read this document or whatever. I schedule my whole life on Google Calendar. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's been a skill set that like nobody taught me, but it's an excellent way to hold myself accountable, which is a absolutely critical characteristic when you're an entrepreneur, because there's nobody else. You have no boss. You're just competing against yourself. So there has to be some form of accountability. The second one, the more philosophical one is another entrepreneur friend of mine recommended this book called Winning by Tim Grover. Really great book. Tim Grover was the personal trainer for Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and Dwayne Wade. And it's not a book on what to do. It's a book on how to think. And the very last chapter, he talks about 
do not manage your time, which I know is kind of ironic because I just told you about this calendar thing that I really <laughs> like. He says, you need to manage your focus. Manage your focus and the time will take care of itself. Like, don't be looking at the clock every five minutes to find out if you're on track. Just manage your focus. And for someone who's always struggled with focusing for long periods of time, that's my like latest battle cry. When I want to tune out or, you know, not work all day, then I tell myself, make camp, manage your focus. That's what you have to be doing. Stop worrying about time and manage your focus. So which came first? Was it managing your focus or the Google Calendar? <laughs> the Google Calendar definitely came first. So I was sort of doing it. I was doing it better, but still not quite right. You know what I mean? And then I feel like this latest edition of like, this is how you should be thinking is manage your focus. I love it. I listened to the book twice. I'm a big audiobook listener. I listened to the book twice in a Same row because I was like, this is so amazing. Yeah, I'm going to definitely check it out for sure. I appreciate that. That's awesome. It's full of fun stories. <laughs> like about Kobe and whatever. <laughs> I'm really glad we were able to connect today and I'm so happy to spend some time with you and get to learn a little bit more about who you are, who the company is and what you guys are doing. Where can listeners go to learn and find out more about Renewell? Yeah, the primary way is renewellenergy.com. Check us out. We'll be posting information about ourselves there, white papers, us in the news, and that's the hub for all information about us. Awesome. Awesome. And listeners, before we go, I want to remind everybody to enter to win our weekly giveaway, which is a backpack made out of renewable art, made out of recycled material from Halliburton Labs. And also please rate, review, and connect with any feedback that you have. Kemp, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun getting to talk to you today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks a lot, Jose. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.